Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth, remembering great ones is easy to do. What about the buildings who spent their whole lives? Long stepping footfalls and catching sad flies. They're guys, remember that guy. Remember that guy, remember that guy, remember that guy, remember that guy. They're just gonna remember some guys now. UIW moves to three and 10 and with, Oh no, this is not good. This is really not good. We've got punches being thrown. This is remember that guy, the show we minor memories for nuts and nostalgia by peripheral players, past and present. Hey there folks. It's me, James, one of your hosts reporting from this mid court brawl. And I am not the only one of us here. Diaz here with the court side. It is mayhem. We've got a very special guest and he's coming in with the steel chair. Please don't hit me with it, but please do introduce yourself. Yeah, you know what? I was just so angry. I went to a college called Incarnate Word, and I lost to a team that was called Texas A&M Commerce. I just had to start throwing fists, throwing chairs, all, all of those things. And I realized, what am I doing with my life going to school in Texas? Shoutouts to UIW grad assistant Sam Kamen for really keeping calm under fire there last night at that brawl, if you didn't see it. A, a brawl in a largely unimportant college basketball game that still managed to, I think, ping all of our phones this morning from ESPN notifications. Yeah, glad that we got to see a bunch of Texans get pissed off and punch each other on a basketball court. Everyone, gotta love the Southland Conference. I mean, it's really pushing to the limits the theory of all press is good press. Like, is UIW going to see an increase in applications because of this? Almost certainly. You you never know. (laughs) I would bet very heavily on it. There will be a lot more commerce going to A&M Commerce. There's 12,000 students at Texas A&M Commerce. There's a lot of people in Texas. I assume every school in Texas has like three times as many people as I would think at first. The Southland Conference has two different Texas A&Ms, both with 12,000 students. It's Commerce and Corpus Christi. That's wild because like... Like, there's Penn State satellite campuses that play, like, D2, D3 sports, but for A&M to just have all of these also Division I schools. Could you imagine not being the best Texas A&M, the C location in your own conference? Honestly, with all the silly season with conference realignment, we need a conference that is solely comprised of the subsidiaries of other major universities. Like, I want <laughs> UNC Asheville. I want UNC Greensboro. I want A&M Corpus Christi. I want A&M Commerce. What else we got? We got Penn State Brandywine. They can get thrown in there. Penn State Altoona. Make oh it happen. On, uh, Asheville is the only UNC in their own conference. So UNC Wilmington. Don't forget them. That's another UNC. We're three UNCs already in this crazy conference. If they're going to be silly, make them super silly. If we're getting rid of the Pac-10, just make University of California system one entire thing. Get the banana slugs going against the Golden Bears on a yearly basis. Don't forget about Cal State. There's just as many Cal State universities as there are UCAL. California division, the Cal State division. This is how we return college sports to what it's supposed to be. This is how we bridge these divisions, how we unite one another. The other thing, though, that unites us here on this show, it's memories. And I'm curious, fellas, if there's anything in particular that's making memories for you right now. Yeah, I got something. 
I read this athletic article earlier today about basketball at the 2024 Paris Olympics. Do either of you see this article about where they're going to be doing basketball? No. No. Where is Victor Wembanyama playing? So not in Paris, which is important to note. That's the, that's the first thing to say. So what I have learned through this article is that the IOC creates buckets of sports based off of their international popularity. And the most important get the most money and preference when it comes to scheduling for the Olympics. And there are three sports that are in this top level. Can you guys guess these top level sports? Athletics, like track and field, is one of the three. Track and field is one of the three. Gymnastics. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. is the, that is the second of the three. It would be, I would think soccer if it wasn't the Olympics. Like, does Olympic soccer matter that much? It is not soccer. Yeah. Is it swimming? It is indeed swimming. Those Hell are the yeah, three dude. in the top group. So those three sports get preference when it comes to scheduling and location. The only time ever that those three sports get preference. Basketball is in the second tier. So anything other than those three sports, basketball can take preference over. Because of the pandemic and because of cost issues in Paris, they had plans to build a new swimming like arena for the Olympics. Didn't work. So that meant they had to just kind of shuffle everything around. And now so the biggest basketball arena in Paris, the Accor Arena, which is where they played those uh, NBA games earlier this year, is hosting gymnastics. With all of the shuffling around, they are trying to figure out, okay, where can we have basketball? There's one other basketball arena in Paris that just opened this month. Brand new, state-of-the-art, NBA caliber arena. But badminton is using it. Get out of here. Hold on. Wait, can I just, before you go on, I got to say, I got to say very specifically how this irks me. Because my Monday night pickup basketball game. We play it at Bryn Mawr's, like, actual basketball court. It's fucking great. But the basketball court is, like, one half, and the badminton courts are on the other half. And the badminton people have it until 8.30. Granted, the basketball court doesn't actually interfere with the badminton at all. But they, as is their right, said that us dribbling the basketballs was too distracting, and if we could just please not dribble the basketballs while they're playing badminton. So... I have personally been victimized by this preferential treatment of badminton. And to know that it is happening on the Olympic level as well, this is a disgrace. I feel like I need to declare war against the sport of badminton. If I may, just real quick, shuttlecock blocked. Thank you very much. Please continue. <laughs> so this brand new $200 million Adidas arena, it is the Adidas arena, is going to host badminton because it has the requisite ceiling height of up to 39 feet for playing badminton. And so they said, okay, let's have basketball play in this convention center that we have in South Paris. And this is just like the Philly Convention Center. It's just a standard convention center, nothing in it. They'd have to like totally retrofit it, but the ceilings are exposed and would probably get hit by a basketball if you shot high enough. And they said, okay, there's no way this is going to work. So what can they do then? They decided that the best solution they had is to move 
basketball, at least the first couple weeks of basketball until gymnastics is over, when they can then use the Accor Arena for the medal round, to Lille, which is a northern city on the border with Belgium. They had previously used Lille's soccer stadium as a basketball arena for Eurobasket in 2015. Uh, they were able to change it up to fit Eurobasket, and it went nothing, nothing crazy. But the problem is that there is no ability to air condition this arena, and they had done it in the fall, so it was cold enough or it wasn't an issue. These games will be in July, and people are going to sweat their brains out to the point where the NBA is apparently openly worried about players getting injured playing in the Olympics. But that's not the only issue. The opening ceremonies for the Paris Olympics are supposed to be a boat parade through the Seine. And it is supposed to happen a day before the opening games of the basketball tournament held in Lille. And France is supposed to play in that opening game, which would mean Victor Wenbanyama would not be able to attend the opening ceremonies of the Paris Olympics. Look. I saw Victor Omanyama's introductory like San Antonio press conference on the San Antonio Riverwalk via YouTube, and I gotta say, I think he's had all of the majestic waterfront time that he needed. <laughs> Frankly, I will be rooting for the French national basketball team this one time. I'm sorry, like I'm 100% going for Victor Wembanyama in the Olympics. Well, I hope that he gets something out of it if he can't be on one of those boats in the boat parade to celebrate the Olympics in his home country. The uh, boats cannot then continue up the north towards the Belgian border and transport them there? Seems unfortunately like not. Uh, the head of French basketball said it's difficult to be in Lille, come back, go on the boat, then after you take the bus and go back to Lille. So we're not going to be on the boats. I think that's as definitive as it gets. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the Olympics and Olympic basketball. And I hope that they're able to retrofit the Lille soccer stadium in a way that doesn't kill these players. They said they're, they're going to try to do some sort of air cooling thing. They didn't say air conditioning. They said air cooling. But they also said they can't make any changes until mid-June when after the soccer season has ended, which means they have less than a month to test it and make sure it actually works. It's going to be interesting. We'll see what happens. And I just hope that, you know, whatever solution they come up with, all the player safety is taken into account. And fuck badminton. Fuck badminton. It's literally in the name. It's bad. <laughs> well, is there anything making memories for you right now that isn't personally victimizing you the way that this bad, bad sport is? Well, I want to, I, I missed the ball last week in not bringing up somebody that we should memorialize on this podcast and you know from a sport and an, an industry that I respect a lot more than badminton uh the marathon race Calvin Kiptum just 4 months ago set the world record in the marathon at the Chicago Marathon he ran a 2 hour 35 second race which is a 4 minute 35 second mile pace for for the whole thing not only that, he ran the second half a full minute faster than he ran the first half. That's, All of this is already that's yeah. buck wild. Sorry. 
Right. Yeah. And no, to run a negative split in the marathon, like I think my second half split was about two minutes slower than my first half. Uh, and I also ran mine in four hours, not almost fucking two. Absolutely insane. And only made even more incredible by the fact that it was his third marathon that he had ever run in his life. In each of the first two marathons that he ran, the first being the Valencia Marathon, he set the course record. He set every single record that there is for a person's first marathon as well. His second marathon, he ran at London. He set the course record there. And then in his third marathon, he sets the world record. And he breaks uh, Elliot Kipchoge's record by over 30 seconds. He did all of this also while not having a personal trainer until the age of 20 he just trained himself he came from a family of farmers and just ran in his spare time and got really fucking good at it um specialized in the half marathon before he got connected with gervais akizimana who is a rwandan steeplechase racer in the 3000 meter just reached out via whatsapp asked for some training advice Akizimana saw the kind of times he was putting up and said, okay, like, let me actually coach this I, kid I can up. I'll give you a little bit more than advice there, buddy. Exactly. Let me, let me take you under my wing. Finally, at the age of 20, he got a coach. He was setting these records at the age of 23. And to put that in further perspective, people usually peak in marathon racing in their 30s. Elliot Kipchoge set the previous world record at the age of 38. Most of the previous world records were set by people in their mid to late 30s. So... The fact that he's already doing this at 23, like he almost certainly would have shattered the the two hour barrier, probably would have pushed it down to 159, maybe even 158. And he would have been the first to ever do that in true race conditions. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge has broken two hours, but that was with pacers and a planned route that was downhill and had backwinds and all that. To run a two hour, 35 second in true race conditions is unprecedented. And it's very tragic that we lost not only Kelvin Kipton, but his coach was also the passenger in the, that car accident where he veered off the road, uh, went into a tree. He passed away. His coach passed away as well. It's tragic. You know, this kind of loss can't be overstated. And it's going to be a while before I think we see anybody come even close to approaching the world records that he set because... You know, he was on the kind of trajectory to truly be the greatest and the greatest by like a large margin. And it's it's tragic that we lose him like we did. And especially when you consider his story coming from such humble roots to not even have a coach until the last three years of his life. And he's already putting up these crazy records. Truly one of the greatest athletes of all time. And uh, the, the, the sports world is worse for not having Calvin Gibson in it. He has become a guy in a very, very tragic way because it's very clear the way you lay it out that this is someone that was going to have an unprecedented career and to now be someone that we will remember almost as a guy because for a split second, there was this person that was better at marathon running than anyone else ever had been at an age where that had just never been the case before. Yeah, no, just just sucks. I mean, it makes you think of like uh, Steve Prefontaine too. Like mm-hmm. it's 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 wild how I read something too where it's like somehow disproportionately 
world record like long distance runners get into vehicle accidents it is fucking bizarre i don't know what we need that time out of the vehicle you know it's 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 enough already i think we we, we've hit the quota i think we're good please let all future incredible distance runners let's let's see how great their careers can be uh kelvin kiptum already the goat and uh hopefully inspires a lot of people to 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 go for that record because it's an incredible achievement uh, and will continue to be. Now, to end on a lighter note for making memories, this this is going to shock you guys. As a positive ending, I'm going to take a second to mention the Baltimore Orioles. We were all three of us talking when news first broke of David Rubenstein, who'd been in talks for months to, to potentially purchase the Orioles. And so we like got a little bit in that one episode, but I realized that I have not taken a second to just talk about the whirlwind. Thir- yeah, I guess really 36 hours. Cause I mean, you're coming into a couple weeks before catchers and pitchers report and your big free agent acquisition after 101 win season, Craig Kimbrell for $13 million, which was the biggest contract yet handed out by this front office, still a one-year contract for a kind of washed bet as they continue to do. And yeah, you know, everyone's getting their arbitration money. This team has given out now more money in arbitration than any other team. It's, it's insane. And it's a testament to building a good roster, but the vibes were off. And then in just 36 hours, there was a new billionaire who is now the only ethical city college graduate. In addition to being the, uh, I will not say ethical billionaire, but I do think that someone that spends several million dollars on the Magna Carta and then spends several million more dollars just building an addition to a public museum to show that Magna Carta off to the public. Like, he definitely has gotten his money from Yale Gaines. There's no way to, like, work in private equity and not have ruined lives to acquire your wealth. He does also seem like he's someone that genuinely wants to spend money on this team. And maybe that is what emboldened the acquisition of Corbin Burns. It certainly seems like it did. Uh, I want to share a super quick story about the Corbin Burns trade, which has been relayed to me by a coworker of mine, whose husband works at one of the like, you know, private dinner clubs in the area, which Michael Elias often frequents. And Michael Elias is chit-chatted with this husband before about the O's. So he knows, husband in question, is an Orioles fan. Michael Elias this one evening, on the phone all night from what I've been told, and finally stands up, folds the phone, makes eye contact with the husband, just shoots a little, like, wink, finger gun, peace sign, walks out, and about 15 minutes later, everyone has heard that we have traded for Corbin Burns. And so uh, nice to know that that he got the breaking news on that. And just all of a sudden, like, I just feel excited for baseball with really no caveats. And this time, the other shoe even dropped. Like, we had the first day of spring training, and four players are way more injured than we thought they were. And they're, like, four pretty important players. And it really didn't slow me down, man. I'm just really excited to watch the birds this year, given that that is a wild swing from some of the moods that we've had here in Birdland. Oh, reasonable to share. No, I think it's very worth saying, and I can say this from Newcastle being bought and being freed from previous ownership that seemingly <laughs> didn't give a shit if the team won. 
and I'm not talking about like the ethics of the owner even, but I'm just saying that first year after the purchase happens, it's almost as strong of a honeymoon as after winning a championship. Like there's a tremendous weight lifted off your shoulders. You can dare to dream again. The first year after Newcastle was bought was amazing. And now we're in the like, okay, well now we're, we're supposed to be good and there's expectations that come with that phase. But this season, like enjoy it for all it's worth because truly – I think it's the most magical season to be a sports fan. Like you're at that intersection of the team is good. They're going to continue to be good in the future. There will be investment. Like you can feel confident about it. I almost get this. I almost have expectations for the Baltimore Orioles. (laughs) We are dangerously close to me expecting them to get some level of success. That's That's the 2025 Orioles. The 2025 Orioles will come with expectations, but the 2024, you are still in this beautiful period where, fuck it, let's just see what they do. Like, they could do anything. They did win 101 last year. We do want, like, to make the playoffs again. Of course. Of course. No, there are ways this season can end with a a bad taste, but even if it does, even if it's a disappointing season, it's like, fuck it, it's one season and we have an owner that's going to let us reload. Yeah, man. Like, the, I, I tried to think about it a little bit. I think there's like a more immediately impactful trade than this Corbin Burns one. And I looked back and like Eric Bedard to Seattle for Chris Tillman, George Sherrill, and Adam Jones was huge. Like, we didn't know it at the time necessarily. Adam Jones is still the player that's played more games at Camden Yards than anyone else. But literally, I think you got to go back to at best signing Miguel Tejada ahead of 2000, uh, 2003 or 2004. I'm not sure exactly which. Like, that's the last time that a player came into the Orioles. We were like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Maybe the Sammy Sosa one. There were some diseased people who talked themselves into the Sammy Sosa one. I was smarter what? than that. Even back then. I was going to ask, was are smarter. you one of those diseased no, people? But you, I am you not one of the people that has an Orioles Sammy Sosa shirt. There are a disturbingly large number of people who have Orioles Sammy Sosa shirts. I mean, if you're Dominican and live in Baltimore, I wouldn't be surprised if you have one of those. Melvin Mora. Melvin Mora. No, sorry. He's not Dominican. I apologize. Miguel Tejada is. Anywho, the Orioles, they got stars. But with Xavier again making the selection, as I understand it, star performances is maybe not what we're looking for. I I frankly don't know how you're going to sum this one up. It's it's an interesting nebulous one that I, I feel like is hard to put a label to. But Xavier, why don't you give it a shot? Yeah, sure. So... After going with something that was, you know, both tangible and fairly obvious last week, I felt like going in a more esoteric direction this week. I had been sitting on this category for a while, and it was actually inspired by Ronald Cooney Jr.'s insane 40-70 season uh, last year. The name of this category is essentially Random Guys in Clubs of Statistical Excellence. Since I was inspired by Acuna's season it made the most sense to stick with one of the guys that I saw in those graphics, like Acuna, the first to do this since blank or Acuna and blank are only people to do this. So today I want to talk about the first member of the 3050 club and the only one that's not named Ron Lacuna Jr. or Barry Bonds. So today I'm going to talk about Eric Davis. Excellent pick. Super Mega Baseball 4 roster member, Eric Davis. I am thrilled. So 
Eric Davis was born May 29th, 1962 in L.A. As a kid, Davis was a big basketball player. He played pickup against Byron Scott. And originally, you know, his goal was to play in the NBA. Uh, he was childhood friends with Daryl Strawberry. And they had a, you know, sports rivalry when Strawberry went to Crenshaw High School and Davis went to John C. Fremont. And they were separated by about 30 minutes. Davis was an absolute star in basketball. He was averaging 29 and 10 and was getting recruited by every college in the then Pac-10, had multiple D1 offers, including Arizona, Arizona State, Pepperdine. But then he decided, end of his junior year, that he didn't want to go to college. And the problem was that at that point in the NBA, to make the NBA, you had to do four years of college. So he said, I don't want to do that. That's not for me. I'm going to switch to baseball where I can go pro right out of high school. So he makes this change to prioritize baseball his senior season. And, you know, he's pretty behind in scouting for baseball because he had not taken it seriously before. So while at the same time, Strawberry is becoming the number one overall pick in the 1980 draft, Davis had kind of wasted too much time. Despite the fact that he hit 635 in his senior season, he ends up being drafted in the eighth round, pick number 200 overall by the Cincinnati Reds. They don't give him a lot of money. Definitely could have still decided to do basketball if he wanted to. But he said, I just, I, I want to go be a professional athlete. So he accepts the Reds offer and gets assigned to the Eugene Emeralds in low A. His first full minor league season as a 19-year-old he plays in 62 games and has an OPS of 1.028 with 11 homers, 39 RBIs, and 40 stolen bases. Continues working his way up the minors, and at one point, he does almost quit and go back to basketball in 81 after he had a really bad interaction with one of his coaches. Because of his speed, he's insanely fast. There was a lot of coaches who they want him to just be a contact hitter, get singles, get on base, and said, stop trying to, you know, go for power. You're a speed guy. Do this, do this, do this. And he was not having it. So it took a little while for his hit tool to develop the way he wanted it to. But he does make his debut in 84, has a couple of September call-ups. There was one stretch where he hit five homers in four games, but he wasn't really fully ready for the majors then. Then Reds manager Pete Rose said, wait till he learns how to play this game. He was very high on Davis. And then he finally breaks into the Reds starting lineup in 1986. During this 86 season, the 24-year-old Davis plays 132 games. It's 27 homers and stole 80 bases. With an well, OPS. <laughs> yes, 27 and 80. It's too bad that he is getting overshadowed by Daryl Strawberry this year, though. He gets overshadowed by Strawberry a lot, but to this date, he's still one of only two people to ever have a 2080 season, the other being Ricky Henderson, who did it twice, once the year before, and then again that year. So two of the three times this has ever happened were in 1986. Uh, and all of the three times it happened were in 1985 and 1986. Yes. Got it. Uh, but, you know, he, he looks great. He, get, he gets some down-ballot MVP votes this year. Uh, there was one game against the Giants in, on September 10th where first inning hits a two-run home run against Vita Blue. Bottom of the first, he robs Rick Lancelotti of a home run. Third inning, hits another home run. 
Eighth inning, hits another home run. He gets pulled because they think that he's not going to get up to bat and want to give him a rest. In the ninth inning, he would have come up with the bases loaded, and Pete Rose apologized afterwards. But overall, he went four for five with three homers, five runs, four RBIs, stolen base, and a robbed home run. The least ethical thing that Pete Rose ever did as manager. Let him get his four home runs, damn it. I feel the same way, like, when Caitlin Clark put up 49 the night that she set the record, they pulled her with two minutes left. Yeah, no, leave, leave her, her in, in the whole 50. damn time. You leave her in to get 50. Leave him in for the Grand Slam. Come on. So disappointing. But what wasn't disappointing was Eric Davis. 1987, he starts off the season on fire. Opening day, three for three with the home run, stolen base, two walks. Through his first 10 games, he's batting 526 with four homers and eight stolen bases. On May 1st, he hits another two home runs, including a Grand Slam. Two days later, he hits three home runs. Then later that month, he hits another Grand Slam making him the first player in history to hit three Grand Slams in one calendar month. In that same month, Johnny Bench compared him to Hank Aaron, and Tommy Lasorda compared him to Willie Mays. Eric Davis wasn't a fan of these comparisons. Uh, he thought it was, kind of, it was unfair to Aaron and Mays. You know, he said, they had done everything you can in the course of Korea, and I'm just starting out. Like, they should not have to be compared to me. They've done all these things. Willie Mays met Davis later that year, and also said the comparisons were unfair, but he said, you know, I had my time, let the kid play. He didn't want pressure on, on Davis. Hank Aaron went a little bit of a different route. He said Eric Davis has unlimited ability, awesome ability. I don't think he'll be Willie Mays. That would take some doing. But on the other hand, I don't think he has a weakness either. Pretty high praise coming from Hank Aaron. Over an 162-game span, dating from June 11th, 1986 to July 4th of 1987, he has 659 plate appearances, slash line of 308, 406, 622, 47 homers, 149 runs, 123 RBIs, and 98 stolen bases. So nearly a 50-100 season. Yeah, I mean, like... Hank Aaron said he had no flaws. You have not identified a flaw that he has yet. I'm all, I am worried because obviously something has to happen in order for him to not breach certain statistical limits that would bar him from being discussed here. And we, we will get to that. But for comparison, the highest combined total of home runs and stolen bases that Barry Bonds ever had in a 162-game season was 51 and 44. So over 50 less than Eric Davis. Pete Rose said that Eric is the one guy who can lead our league in home runs and stolen bases. Name me another cleanup hitter who could steal 100 bases. Name one. It's like having an atomic bomb sitting next to you in the dugout. Okay, so this is interesting to me that, that he is being slotted into the cleanup spot. Like, from a traditional manager perspective, from Pete Rose's like perspective here, he is still seeing him as a power hitter who is very fast. Yes. He gets named as a starter in the 1987 All-Star Game alongside good friend Daryl Strawberry. And the season continues to go well until early September. Last play of the game in Wrigley Field makes a game-saving catch, but runs right into the wall. As baseball fans will know that Ivy is not soft, and it masks a brick wall. He makes this game-winning catch, 
but he does severely injure his ribs and misses about 20 games in September. Despite missing all those games, he finishes the 1987 season with a 293 average, 37 homers, and 50 steals in just 129 games with a war of 7.9. Prior to this year, there had only been six players to ever join the 30-30 club. Davis was one of four this year, the others being Strawberry, Joe Carter, and Howard Johnson. But only Davis hit the 30-50 mark, becoming the first player in history to ever do that. He also wins the Gold Glove and the Silver Slugger. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the power speed statistic, the Bill James sabermetric. Power speed is essentially a stat that combines its number of home runs times stolen bases times two divided by home runs plus stolen bases. His power speed number that year was 42.53, which is still the fourth best in history, only behind Alfonso Soriano's 43.36 in 2006. A-Rod's 43.91 in 1998, and Acuna's insane 52.51 last year, which is just fucking ridiculous. 52. Yeah, it, it it's Acuna and then everybody else. But that makes sense because Acuna doing that is what inspired this. Davis's rare combination of power and speed continued through 1990, and over those five seasons, he averaged 30 homers and 41 steals per season. He got down-ballot MVP votes every year, earned three gold gloves, two silver sluggers, and was named All-Star a second time. The 1990 season was technically his worst of all of those seasons, but still a 2020 player, and one of the best and most important members on the Reds team that went wire to wire that season. And then they swept the defending champion A's in the World Series in what was considered a massive upset at the time. And Marge Shot was mad because they didn't get enough ticket revenue from the other days. We'll, we'll talk more about this. You won so, that one too quick, boys. So Davis homered in his first at-bat of, of the series, was playing great, but then suffers a lacerated kidney in game four while diving to make a catch. So he has to get taken to the hospital. He doesn't get to celebrate with the rest of his team. And in something that encapsulates the Marge shot era, the Reds leave him in Oakland alone while they go back to Cincinnati to celebrate. And they refuse to charter a private plane or any sort of transportation for him once he gets out and tell him, figure out your own way to get back from Oakland. After he was injured, making a great play in game four of their World Series win. Could not be less surprised. She needed more games in order to have the airfare. They needed to drop at least one or two. So after this season, he gets knee surgery for a prior injury but he doesn't fully recover for the 91 season and he struggles pretty badly. After 91, he gets traded to the Dodgers for Tim Belcher and John Wetland. The next couple years are not much better. He struggles with the Dodgers and on August 23rd, 1993, he suffers the ignominy of being traded for a player to be named later to the Detroit Tigers. 94, as we know, strike shortened season, not much better. Further injuries limit him to uh, just 37 games, and he only hits 183. Pretty, pretty big drop-off. After the season, he chooses to retire due to his injuries at just 32 years old. But as we know, the true mark of a guy is that you still have shit to prove. Right, Diaz? 
there's always more shit which is waiting to be proved. So after spending all of 1995 recovering, Eric Davis comes back with the Reds in 1996. He hits 287, has another 20-20 season, his best year since 1990. Gets named NL Comeback Player of the Year by the Sporting News. Pretty improbable given all of the things he'd had to go through over the past couple of years. But the Reds don't re-sign him after, after this year. He becomes a free agent, and he goes to a place that we've already talked about earlier on this episode. He goes to Baltimore. That's right. This is O's legend, Eric Davis. Yes, it is. So Davis gets off to a hot start with the O's, and he leads the AL in batting average in April. However, his numbers start slumping badly. Can't figure out what's up. But examination reveals that he's actually suffering from colon cancer. So he is out for the next five months undergoing invasive treatment for colon cancer. Man, if I had a nickel for every time that an Orioles player just all of a sudden found out that they had colon cancer in the middle of the season. I don't even know if it's two. It's two. (laughs) It is two nickels. Which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. But he does return to the O's in September. Even though he is still being treated for cancer, he just wants to be there for the playoff push. And in Game 5 of the ALCS against Cleveland, he hits a ninth-inning home run that ends up being the difference in a 4-2 win. And then we won't talk about anything else that happens after that game. It's fine. Then Cleveland loses. Again, I want the teams that beat me to suffer. (laughs) <laughs> they lose to Levon Hernandez in the Marlins. Hell yeah. Uh, Miguel Cabreras. No, that's not Miguel. He's 2003. My apologies. That was a different team that you hate that lost that year, James. It was also great. <laughs> so for his comeback with dealing with cancer, he gets awarded with the Roberto Clemente Award uh, for that 97 season. Finally, fully healthy for 1998. His cancer's in remission. His body's feeling good. He finishes fourth in the AL in batting with a 327 average, along with 28 homers and 89 RBIs. Not bad for a 36-year-old who has missed multiple seasons due to injury and cancer already. From July 12th to August 15th, he batted 400. And he had a 30-game hit streak. Technically, this is still the O's franchise record. There is technically the old National League O's from the late 1800s, had a guy who, who had a 45-game hit streak, but that's not considered part of the current Baltimore Orioles records because it was, you know, franchises moving around. That, that's not these O's. So the it, it current, was a team that got gutted for the Dodgers. It has nothing to do with Baltimore anymore. Yeah, so the, the current Baltimore Orioles, their record for a hitting streak is still owned by Eric Davis in his 30-game uh, hit streak as a 36-year-old. Not bad whatsoever. That's uh, a 36-year-old who took a year off after being dog shit before it. And then had cancer the previous year. Once again, he gets some down-ballot MVP votes for the first time in eight years. Despite his success that year, the Orioles do not choose uh, to re-sign Davis. Probably the right choice. Spends the next couple of years with the Cardinals and Giants, not really playing much because of injuries before he officially retires in 2001. Overall, Davis ended his career with 282 homers and 349 stolen bases, 
just missing being part of the eight-member 300-300 club. The numbers are still staggering, though, when you think about the fact that over an 18-year period, injuries and cancer limited him to the equivalent of just 10 full seasons. It's almost exactly 10 full seasons when you break it down by 162 games. Over this time, he had seven 2020 seasons, which is still fourth most of all time. He's tied with Carlos Beltran. The only players with more than him are both Bonses and Bobby Abreu. People forget that Bobby Abreu was also very, very fast. Um, Bobby Abreu sucked. I mean, there's issues with Bobby Abreu, but he was fast is what I'm saying. Like, it... You know, you know when he was fast. You know when he was fast when he could look real nice pulling in the second base for a double. You know when he wasn't really fast when there was a fly ball close to the wall down in right field and he didn't want to go anywhere fucking near it. The Phillies never won shit with Bobby Abreu. The Angels never won shit with Bobby Abreu because Bobby Abreu is not a winning player and he's bad at baseball. I'm sorry, I have to do that every time I hear Bobby Abreu's name. All right, well then let's discount Bobby Abreu. And we'll get rid of Barry Bonds for cheating. And we'll say that the top two are Bobby Bonds. Yes, and I do not agree with removing Barry and Bonds. Eric Davis. <laughs> hey, Barry Bonds got his style from Eric Davis. So, and that's not a joke. That's like an actual thing. Like the dangly earring and everything. Apparently he ripped that from, from Eric Davis. Uh, and that's Barry Bonds is the reason I wanted to have my ears pierced when I was younger. So that's fucking sick. So the line is Eric Davis, Barry Bonds, James. There our, was our three names have been mentioned together a lot of times previously. <laughs> There was one article by Joe Posnanski I read that I really liked. It described Davis as someone who did not have a calendar year kind of career. But when he played, it was surreal baseball. In 2007, three people voted for him for the Hall of Fame, which, as you know, that's like one of my favorite things about being a guy for baseball, just getting those random votes. Posnanski spoke with one of the people who voted for him and asked why, given the fact that, you know, Based on the totality of his career, he didn't have a Hall of Fame career. The voter responded, yeah, but he was the best player I, I ever saw. You know, that's pretty high, high praise coming from, obviously we know the Hall of Fame voters, there's some issues there, but for one of them to say that that's the best player they ever saw, that's pretty impressive. And he possibly had the greatest 162-game run ever. But just, I think about all these little statistical categories that he's in, the 2020 club, the 3050 club, the 2080 club, and of all of the people who have the requisite power and speed to reach these categories, people remember Ricky Henderson. They remember Barry Bonds. They might even remember Bobby Bonds if they're of a, of a certain age. They'll almost certainly remember Ronald Acuna in, in the future. But Eric Davis, I thought, deserved a shout out, and he deserves to be remembered too. Orioles legend Eric Davis. I want to say he's got one of the home run ball plaques on Utah Street in the stadium. I'll have to check next time I go. This is what Google is for. No, man, we need to go back to existing in the world where sometimes we don't know things for like 30 minutes. (laughs) All right, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to the ether for now. But one thing I don't want to leave to the ether is another guy that we should be talking about. Yes, yes. Let's talk about another guy. Uh, And let's talk about a basketball guy this time. There's about an estimated 8.1 billion people on Earth, right? FIBA estimates that of those 450 million currently play the game of basketball, 
about 450 of those get to play in the NBA. So across the entire history of the NBA, there's a little under 5,000 people who have played at least one game in the NBA. Of those 5,000, there are 165 individuals who have scored at least 50 points in one game. 69 of those 165 have multiple 50-point games, which means that not quite as nice, but it is the other side of nice. 96 guys have had one career 50-point game. There's some exciting recent additions to this list. Shout out Tyrese Maxey put up his first 50-point game this season. There's some members of the Hall already among this 96. We got to shout out Nick Anderson. There's a couple really cool names that I saw on the list. There was uh, Rudy Del Ruco uh, from the 60s. But uh, my favorite name was Truck Robinson uh, with his 50-point game. Truck Robinson is pretty excellent. Love Truck Robinson. Uh, But I want to talk about a guy who, to my research, had the second least career points per game of anybody to have had at least one 50-point game. 8.5 for his career. I want to talk about a man who I I personally describe as the bagless wonder. He has no bag. He was the third member of the Florida O4s, perhaps the most famous recruiting class in recent college basketball history. He is a professional James Harden annoyer. And although his 50 point game did come with the Minnesota Timberwolves, he is a Sixers legend. And his name is Corey Brewer. Corey Brewer. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I love me some Corey Brewer and, you know, we'll get to his Sixer stint later, but he was born March 5th, 1986 in Portland. I uh, did not grow up a Trailblazers fan because this was Portland, Tennessee, which is just a modest town of a little over 10,000 people. He had a pretty productive high school career. His senior year, he averaged about 30 and 12. He was the 31st ranked prospect in the class of 04 per rivals.com and he was named into the mcdonald's all-american game as well so on the national radar he's got some offers there's one offer to stay home in tennessee but instead he's going to join up with a few other of the top members of this class and they're going to go to florida the florida o4s are headlined by al horford and joe kim noah you also got Corey brewer torian green is considered the fourth member of the florida o4s And the often forgotten about fifth member was Lee Humphrey, who was your very typical, he's a smart white point guard who doesn't turn the ball over and gets the ball to the people who are better than him. A true coach's son, first in, first out. You know, you let your daughter hit him. No, I mean, honestly, it's a position in college basketball that is is dying off a little bit. And I think we need to bring back – the four-year unathletic but doesn't turn the ball over white point guard who knows how to get the ball to people who are better than him. The Stetson Bennett of point guards. Stetson Bennett, yes. Uh, I mean, from our Temple time, T.J. DeLeo. Loved me some T.J. DeLeo. But that's basically who Lee Humphrey was. He was the fifth member of that crew. But they come into Florida, and they are a very highly regarded class coming in. But... It's going to be difficult for some of them to find their way into the rotation. This is a Florida team that is coming off of their first SEC championship in program history the previous year. David Lee is coming back for his senior year, the the future Golden State Warrior and New York Knick. So he's kind of holding down the front court. It's going to be tough for any of these guys to break through into the rotation. But it's actually Corey Brewer 
who sees himself in the starting lineup as a true freshman. He starts 30 of 32 games, which is the most of any of those Florida 04s. Al Horford started 23 games. Joakim Noah came off the bench all year. And the reason why he's able to earn that spot is he's probably not quite at a top level with his offensive game yet, but he is already an elite defender, which is very rare to see in a true freshman. Only averaged seven and a half points, but he also had a steal and a half a game. And Florida wins the SEC championship. They get the four seed and they win their opener uh, before they fall to Nova in trying to get to the Sweet 16. Was Kyle Lowry on that Nova team? That would have been Kyle Lowry, Randy Foy, Alan Ray, Mike Nardi. Yeah, that was that that was like the first big Nova team to come up. So yeah, that that would have been your Kyle Lowry edition. It's not quite Scotty Reynolds yet, but yeah, we're we're talking Kyle Lowry era. A left-handed shooter. David Lee, the left-handed shooter, yes. David Lee graduates now though, so it opens up the front court and it clears the way for now the entire Florida O4s are the starting five. You got Lee Humphrey at point guard, you got Brewer and Green playing at your 2-3. And then you have uh, a very big and very talented front court between Noah and Horford. People don't quite know what to expect from Florida coming into this season. They did graduate, not just Lee, but with some other starters graduating. They saw about 60% of their points per game from the previous season leave the team. So there's some question marks. And they entered the season unranked, but... They start off really hot, start off 9-0, and and they're playing host to Jacksonville with a chance to go to 10-0 and to tie the record, the program record of 10-0 and to open this season. Jacksonville's 1-5. There's not really a ton of drama to this game. Jacksonville did lead 6-5 to early on, but Florida goes in the half up 50-31. to Corey Brewer didn't have his best night shooting that night. He went 7-16. of He missed all three of his attempts from deep. Only went one of two at the line, but he had two blocks. He had two steals to go along with his 15 points. He also had 10 rebounds and 13 assists, which made him the first Florida Gator in history to record a triple-double. Wait, really? It had gone that long? Triple-doubles just don't really happen that often in college basketball in general. I mean, I it, it's part right. very of rarely the, have the rebound assist combination, because the the, the you know the shortened game, but also the heavier rotation that you usually see in college basketball. It, it's just not got, a thing that happens that that much, right? I mean, we we've got the forty minute game as opposed to forty eight. At this time, it was the thirty five second shot clock versus a twenty four second shot clock. Full reset uh, off of an offensive rebound, so it reset all the way back to thirty five. So, yeah, it's, it's just rare that there are enough possessions for a player to accumulate all of those disparate stats. But Corey Brewer puts up that first triple-double in Florida Gators history, and that brings them to 10-0. They would run it all the way out to 17-0 to set the program record for best start to a season before they fall off a little bit towards the end of the year. They lose three in a row at one point in late February, but they get it together during the conference tournament, go on to win the SEC tournament, and they earn a three seed going into March Madness this year. First couple games, no problems at all. Uh, They beat South Alabama, and then they beat Milwaukee to go into the Sweet 16. They find themselves in a dogfight there with Georgetown, 
They lead for most of the game, but Georgetown takes a lead late. We're under 30 seconds left. Georgetown's up one. All the other offensive stars are having an off game. Joe Kim Noah is not playing well. Al Horford's not playing well. So Corey Brewer, who was only two of five from the floor, they, they, they dial his number, and he hits the mid-range jumper to put him back up one with 28 seconds left. They get the stop. They shoot their free throws. They go on to win 57-53. They get a rematch with Villanova in the Elite Eight uh, with the chance to go to the Final Four. This time, the Gators are victorious. They win 75-62, and they go to the second Final Four in program history. From there, they got George Mason. This was the year that George Mason went on their crazy run to the Final Four. Cinderella run would end there. Florida takes care of business. They go into the National Championship where they take on UCLA. They win once again, and for the first time in program history, the Florida Gators are national champions. Off of this momentum, the the O4s could very easily just say, you know, we did it. We came here. We accomplished what we set out to do. It's time to go pro. Horford and Noah are already considered lottery prospects. Corey Brewer is probably like a mid-late first guy, but they do what's like something that... I guess you could maybe see more people doing these days with NIL. But in that day and age, the advice was absolutely when you have the chance to go pro and get your money, you go in there and you do it. But they decided to buck that and come back for their junior years and have the chance to go back to back. If they're able to pull it off, they would be the first team since Duke in the early 90s to, to pull that off. Think about how much they would have made in NIL today. Easily millionaires, like all of them. Oh, without a doubt. Even Lee Humphrey probably would have made like high six figures. You you know Lee Humphrey gets a car dealership, something in Gainesville. Now he is truly Stetson Bennett. I would love to learn that Lee Humphrey runs like the number two used car dealership in Gainesville now. Not number one. He's number two. Um, but we're not worried about that. We're worried about this attempt at the repeat, which... If you paid attention, if you knew about this Florida team coming in, you know they dominate the regular season again. They have kind of that late season fall off similar that they had the previous year, but they win the SEC tournament. They go in as the number one overall seed. They get into the Final Four with very little drama the whole way. Their closest game was an eight-point win. They get a rematch with UCLA in their first Final Four game. They win that 76-66 to set up a game against Ohio State and Greg Oden for the national championship. And just the the one thing that's worth noting about this game, what's really cool about it, is this was a rematch of the college football championship that was played just three months prior when Tim Tebow and the Florida Gators beat Ohio State and Troy Smith. Ohio State with the potential to enact some revenge here, but it is not to be as behind 13 points and eight rebounds, as well as three steals from Corey Brewer. The Gators pull off the repeat. They win 84-75 to become back-to-back champs. And it's incredible. I mean, like, I, if it weren't for the fact that Florida football had literally just won a national championship, you probably would have said this is where Florida becomes a basketball school. And especially if the 0-4s decided to come back for their fourth season, but... Lee Humphrey was the only one to hang back for for one more year. The rest of them would declare for the NBA draft. We see 
Al Horford go third overall in this draft behind Odin at one, KD went two. Corey Brewer goes seventh to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you see Joe Kim Noah go with the ninth pick to the Chicago Bulls. With this being the case, the Florida Gators became the first school in history to have three players all drafted in the top 10 of the same NBA draft. So just further sending home how incredible, like everybody, I feel like the most talked about recruiting class in college basketball is the Fab Five. Fab Five didn't win shit. Fab Five choked. The Florida O4s are the true greatest recruiting class in the history of college basketball. They delivered. I prefer my recruiting classes that win championships. Me personally. And championships. Multiple, exactly. Torian Green didn't get drafted quite as high as the other three. He went late in the second round to the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, A largely unnotable career. The one thing that I just want to mention because I thought it was funny he applied for and received Georgian citizenship and played for them in European competition. Don't think he ever got them to the Olympics, but he averaged 12 in Euro basket competition one year. So he's played in Florida and Georgia. Exactly. He's really, really towing that Florida Georgia line, but we're not, we're not worried about him. We're not worried about Georgia. We're worried about Corey Brewer and we're worried about his rookie season with the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's still the defensive pest that he's always been, but He's already not necessarily the most creative offensive player, and his offensive game is really struggling in his rookie year. Uh, he averages just 5.8 points per game while shooting under 38% from the floor. And in his second year, it's looking like a bit of the same, and he tears his ACL in December, which ends his second year early. And it's looking like at this point, this could be a career that just ends up getting derailed, you know, right, right from the jump before it ever really gets a chance to take off. So he's at this bit of a crossroads entering year three, but he puts up by far his best season yet. He starts all 82 games for the Wolves, shoots 43% from the floor, 35% from threes, averaging 13 a game. And he's, he's finally starting to look like he could be the kind of player that he projected as. You know, he's just be competent offensively, be an absolute pest defensively, and that's going to be the kind of role that he's going to have for himself. For his efforts that year, he finished ninth in the most improved player voting. So one of the 10 most improved players for his third season. Year four starts off with the Wolves, but then he's actually part of that three-team trade between the, the Wolves, but more famously, the Nuggets and the Knicks that sent Carmelo Anthony from Denver to New York. Corey Brewer actually ended up with the Knicks as part of this trade. And you, you can very easily start seeing the image in your head. They're bringing in Carmelo to dominate offensively. Corey Brewer is going to play on the opposite wing. When he gets open shots, he'll take them, but he's just going to be the number one defender. And this could be a great thing for the New York Knicks. And they wave him before he ever plays a single game. Still one of the dumbest trades of all time. And that's saying something for the Knicks who traded the pick that would become Joe Kim Noah for Eddie Curry, as I have famously lamented in this podcast. Because Carmelo Anthony was open about wanting to go to the Knicks, the Knicks were not going to win that year, and Carmelo's contract was up at the end of the season. If they had just waited, they could have signed him and not traded away a ton of assets, and instead used that to get somebody else to add to Carmelo and Amari Stoudemire, and maybe had a good team. But, Daddy, I want Carmelo Anthony, and I want him now. I mean, that there were rumors last week 
that the Rangers can't trade their first round pick at the deadline this year because the NHL draft later this year is at the Sphere in Vegas, which is owned by James Dolan. And there, the rumors were that he he didn't want the Rangers to not be able to make a pick in the first round. So he was banning Chris Drury from trading it for deadline reinforcements. That is the James Dolan move. It's it's a total James Dolan experience to to make this unnecessary trade and then to accidentally get the perfect piece to have opposite of Carmelo Anthony in his heliocentric offense, and you just let him go for nothing. But what was the New York Knicks loss was the Dallas Mavericks game because after being bought out, Corey Brewer would sign with the Mavericks for the rest of the season. And if you're keeping track, it's year four. He was drafted in 2007. Folks, th- these are the 2011 Dallas Mavericks that Corey Brewer signs for. One of the best, one of my favorite teams of all time, I should say. Definitely not one of the best teams of all time, but such a stupidly fun team with Jason Terry and Dirk. Well, it was it was a bunch of guys who were kind of on their last legs, right? Like, it was Dirk's real last chance at winning the title. Jason Kidd is towards the end of his career. Jason Terry is an undersized bucket getter towards the end of his career. But you have this infusion of young defensive talent to really stabilize everything. And I'm not even talking about Tyson Chandler. I'm talking about Corey Brewer. No, I would, I would love to be able to say that Corey Brewer had these iconic moments that you forgot about during that 2011 run. He played 13 games down the stretch in the regular season. He started two of them. He appeared in six playoff games, all of them in garbage time. But in those six games, he scored nine points as the Mavericks ran through the Western Conference into the NBA Finals, beating the Heat in six games and making Corey Brewer an NBA champion. To this day, he is still the only of the Florida O4s to also win an NBA title. So the most decorated champion of all, Corey Brewer. The Mavericks maybe would have gone for a repeat if they would have kept Corey Brewer around. (laughs) He could have shown them the way of how to win two championships in a row. Mm, Yes. But unfortunately for the Mavericks, they traded him along with Rudy Fernandez for a second round pick (laughs) to Denver. That's brutal. Um, It's like, you can just buy round picks in the NBA. If you're trading two players for a second round pick, that means that you're trying to get rid of the contract of one of them and you're using the other as sweetener. So I can picture Rudy and Corey being like, I'm the sweetener. You're you're the bad. You're the bad. All of my stats on Basketball <laughs> Reference. It's me. It's me. It's uh, it, it could be a humbling moment, and his time in Denver is largely unremarkable. Across two seasons, he averages 10.7 a game. Does finish top 10 in six man in voting for his second season in Denver. So worth mentioning. But after that, he becomes a free agent, and he wants to go back to where it all started. He wants to go back to Minnesota, so he signs on for a three-year deal for $15 million with a player option for that third year. Towards the end of the season, the Wolves are kind of right around 500. They're a little under 500, but they're well eliminated from playoff contention. Uh, it's April 11th. The Houston Rockets are coming into town. James Harden, I believe this is either his first or his second season with the Rockets. They're in that 4-5 seed range. They're battling for playoff position. And the Wolves are battling with some injuries and themselves eliminated. 
they're not going to put guys out there that are a little hurt. So Kevin Love's not playing. There's two other starters that aren't playing. And even though Corey Brewer was a regular starter this season for the Wolves, he's seen an opportunity for some increased offensive responsibilities in this game. And he's joking to all his teammates in the locker room before, like, oh, easy 30 tonight. Easy 30. His career high was 29 coming into this game. But he's, ah, easy 30. It's not going to be a problem. He draws the James Harden assignment and he starts off being his normal defensive pass self. He, he gets a couple steals. He's getting out in transition. And he's also finishing strong at the rim. He gets three and ones in just the first quarter of this game. and. Getting those layups in transition is now encouraging him to kind of attack the rim more in the half court as well. He's continuing to get to the rim. He's Anything he throws up, it, it's going in. He makes one corner three, but other than that, every other shot this entire first half is just in the restricted area within five feet of the rim. It's all layups. Nothing like fancy about it. It's just this play resulted in a layup, and Corey Brewer is the person who got the layup. He has no bag. You've made that clear. There is no bag, but there are buckets. And he's got several. Diaz autobiography. No bag, all buckets. (laughs) That would be a good title. But he he had the one corner three, and he's at 23 points as as the first half clock is winding down. He's got the ball about three quarters court. Throws up the prayer, because why not? And once you know it, he banks it in. He's sitting on 26 now at halftime. And when a shot like that goes in, now you're starting to think, okay, shit, like this, there, there's something in the air tonight. This might be his game. Early in the third quarter, he takes a mid-range jumper, folks, and he hits it. It's the only non-three-point jump shot that he would take all night. Every other basket the rest of the way, because we already mentioned the three-pointer. He went two of three from three in this game between the regular corner three that he hit in the first half and that banked in three. Everything else the rest of the way, 16 of the 19 made shots for the total game were made in the restricted area. With that aggression, though, attacking the rim, he's also getting to the line. He goes 11 of 15 from the line, which adds up to a grand total of 51 points that Corey Brewer scored in this game. And, like, I just want to be clear, too. Like, I mentioned it's it's late season. There's people that are injured. This wasn't like when Devin Booker went for 70 as the Suns are getting smoked and it's like, well, this is the only thing we have to play for. Let's just let Corey get his. They needed every single one of those points for a 112 to 110 victory over those Houston Rockets. They win? Does he outscore James Harden? James Harden had an efficient 35. It took him 14 shots to get 35 points, which is like absurd to say out loud. But he did outscore James Harden. He was the leading scorer for the game. And the thing is, even with him putting up those offensive numbers, like we mentioned earlier, it started with his defense getting the steals and getting out early in the first quarter. He finished with six steals for that game, which means that he is one of only four players in NBA history with a 50.6 steal game. Ah, that, that is the kind of stat that I was hoping for from this topic. One of only four to do this very, very specific thing. Uh, I fucking love it. I wanted, I wanted to tease you with thinking that it was the 96 50-point games. No, it is the four 50.6 steals games that we're actually concerned with. Appreciate uh, it. Would either of you like to guess the other three to put up 50 with six steals? Has Peyton done it before? Not Gary Peyton. I don't think Gary Peyton has a 50-point game. Has Russ done it? 
not Russ. One of them was recent, if I'm not mistaken. Was not it one recent. of the ones Corey, this? Corey Brewer no? is the most recent. Oh wow. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, Stockton. Not Stockton. I can give you. I can give you errors. I'll, I'll tell you. Mid '80s to late '90s is one of the guys. He's very good. Is it Jordan? It is Jordan. Jordan's uh, yeah. one. Yeah. There we go. One of them is a six foot guard from Georgetown. Allen Iverson. And the other shoots his free throws underhand. Rick Barry? And Rick Barry. That's a pretty good quartet. So Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, Rick Barry, and Corey Brewer are the only four people in NBA history with a 50-point, six-deal game. Of the 51 points that he scored, 27 of them were fast-break points. So again, just being faster and like trying harder than everybody his whole way on the way to this 51-point performance. He was always known for his cardio and his work ethic among teammates. So to them, it wasn't a surprise. But to David Stern, it probably was a little bit of a surprise because he did get popped with a random drug test right after the game. The thing is, like, when you get the the random drug test, you have to take the test before you're allowed to talk to the media. But he just played 45 minutes and ran his ass off that whole time. All of the fluids that were in him have left his body already by being sweating out. So he, he said it took an hour of just chugging water until he was finally able to produce enough to give a sample for the test, which came back negative. No drugs, only dog used in the execution <laughs> of this 50-point game. And uh, we, measured, we, we, we tested his urine, and all we heard was a barking sound. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, instead of the printer, it's just, it's just barking. But no, he's, so he, he joins this, this incredible club, and... Coming off of that, you know, his place in history is secured. He's in this elite club. Going into the next season, Houston Rockets were probably a little impressed by this because midseason, they decided they want to trade for Corey Brewer. They want to bring him in to be the missing piece for this Houston Rockets lineup. They want to shore up the defense around Harden. Once again, he finishes top 10 in sixth man voting within that first season for Houston. Coming off the bench, He plays a key role in Game 6 of the Western Conference Semifinals. Comes off the bench, chips in 18 points along with 10 rebounds as the Rockets win Game 6 and route to their 3-1 comeback against the Doc Rivers coached basketball team. That's the best part of that story. We don't need to say that it was the LA Clippers. It's just the (laughs) Doc Rivers coached basketball team. That would take them to the Western Conference Finals where they lost to the Golden State Warriors in the first year of their inevitable dynasty. Coming off of that, you know, he feels like he, he's proving his worth a little bit. He has the player option for $5 million, but he declines it and would instead sign a new three-year deal worth just under $8 million a year with the Rockets. So gets a slight little bag increase. Plays another year and a half there before... He gets traded along with a first-rounder. Daryl Morey has decided, we don't want any of that defense stuff. Let's get more buckets in here. Let's trade Corey Brewer with a first-rounder to the Lakers for Lou Will. He spends an unceremonious season with the Lakers uh, before reaching a buyout after a, a, almost exactly one calendar year with the Lakers. Problem was, he didn't have his own wings. You know, Lemon Pepper Lou Will can't compete with that. My favorite thing about that nickname is like it didn't come out until he got in trouble for going to the strip club during lockdown to get lemon pepper wings. That was when the nickname started. 
the the best part of that is that people were questioning like that sounds like the dumbest excuse ever. And then there were multiple articles of I went to to Magic City to try the wings and holy shit, they're incredible. Yes, people do go to the strip club just for the wings. Like I know the name, me, person who has never been to a strip club in my life. I still know the name Magic City because of Lemon Pepper Lou Williams. Do you think they do like takeout orders now? Like yes, hundred percent. Yes, there's no way they're not. <laughs> they're on they're listed on like Atlanta Uber Eats. Yeah, they gotta be. Legendary Lemon Pepper Lou will. You know, if Corey Brewer would have had some of that, maybe he could have had a, a better time with the Lakers. But he doesn't. Gets that buyout. We're towards the end of the 2018 season. KD has just recently left the Oklahoma City Thunder. So Billy Donovan is looking for somebody to come in, take that spot. Still kind of been empty. And who does he sign? He signs Corey Brewer uh, to reunite his former player. Corey Brewer reunited with his college coach and plays a, a pretty key role for the Thunder down the stretch for having just joined in March. Provides some of that defensive structure uh, alongside Russ. In the playoffs, he plays 25 minutes a game, but this was the year that the Thunder played the Jazz in the first round and lost in six games. So Corey is involved, not really a difference maker, unfortunately. Finds himself unsigned to open the start of the next season. And that is until we reach finally what is to me the most important part of this story, the Sixers part of the story. Corey Brewer in January would sign a 10-day contract with the 76ers. The Sixers had a lot of injuries in their wing-slash-guard area, and they figured, why not bring in Corey Brewer to take a shot on him? I am not exaggerating when I say this is one of the 10 best games of the Embiid era with the Sixers. It was a primetime game against the Houston Rockets. James Harden has always given us fits. We've never had any answers for him. And we decide, why not throw the new guy, Corey Brewer, on him? And Corey Brewer is just the most annoying fucking crackhead of a defender in James Harden's face the entire time. Like, it's literally like a full full face guard, full 94 feet. He gets into a, a shoving match with James Harden at one point. You know, they both get the double tech. Corey Brewer continues to just like smile at James Harden while jawing at him. It's really psychotic what he's doing. At one point, he draws an offensive foul on James Harden uh, while he's trying to get the inbound and then immediately comes back down the other way, steals from James Harden, coasts in for a dunk. Like, it is probably the best regular season game of the Sixers I've ever seen. He was an absolute fucking animal, and the Sixers ended up winning, I think, by like 20 in that game. And James Harden never gave Sixers fans any fits ever again. Finally, we, we finally had the antidote, and the antidote was Corey Brewer. He had, had a great 10-day stint with us, so much so that we signed him to a second 10-day contract, played another game in which he started. He scored 20 points. We're thinking, this is great. This is exactly what we need going into the playoffs. This was the, uh, the 2018-19 Sixers, so this was the Jimmy Butler year. Thought it would have been perfect, and uh, what we did instead is after his second 10-day contract, we didn't give him a regular fucking contract because the Colangelo family are war criminals and (laughs) should be disbarred from the United States. That was the Sixers team, man. 
It should have been. This is the year. To be clear, this is the year. But that was the Sixers team, man. That would have been the year. That's that's the title of that year. If Corey Brewer, if we would have just kept Corey Brewer, it's really that simple, I think. But obviously, some more intelligent organizations are going to take heed of this. So the Sacramento Kings signed Corey Brewer after that. They signed him to a 10-day contract. They signed him to another 10-day. And then they signed him for the rest of the season. He again starts 2019-20 season unsigned. He would remain unsigned up uh, through the COVID shutdown. But when it came time for the bubble to open, Sacramento Kings were incredibly one of the teams that were invited to the bubble because of the very weird parameters that they drew for teams that got to qualify for it. Totally wasn't just to get Zion in the bubble. Don't ever say it was just so that they could get Zion in the bubble. That was a total coincidence how it just barely got the Pelicans in. But one of the beneficiaries of it was the Kings. And the Kings knew this was going to be a weird environment. We have a young team. We need a stabilizing force. And so they signed Corey Brewer just to come play in the bubble with them. He appeared in five of the eight games that the Kings played. He scored five points. He notched four steals. And uh, that would conclude his 2019-2020 season, and that would end his NBA playing career. He is now a member of the coaching staff with the New Orleans Pelicans, so still very much involved in the game. And, uh, you know, who knows where we're going to see him turn up later down the road. But as we reflect on his playing career, it is one of 8.5 points per game. 2.8 rebounds per game, 1.5 assists per game, uh, 1.2 steals per game on about 23 minutes. However, the 8.5 points per game, he had an 811 game career. If he instead had an 810 game career and did not have that 51 point game, he would have an 8.4 for his points per game for his career. So it is incredible to think that he played so many games and yet this one individual game was so that's an outlier that it tangibly changed his career averages. But it's an incredible achievement, I think, to be in a club with Allen Iverson and Michael Jordan and Rick Barry. Says a lot about the kind of player that he is. Uh, high effort. The only three-time champion of the Florida O4s. And I think perhaps the guyest of them, Corey Brewer. No, to be fair... Joakim Noah will have some guy credentials when it's time to sit down and discuss that. He certainly does. He certainly does. Uh, Perhaps the ugliest shot of a person that is allowed to shoot jump shots in the history of basketball. Yeah, I guess Sean Marion's isn't worse than Joakim Noah's. Right, because like Sean Marion at least like makes it. You know what I mean? (laughs) The prettiest shot is the one that goes in. That's what I always say as as a fellow ugly jump shot haver. I looked into it. I can order a 50-pack of Lou Will Lemon Pepper Chicken Wings to be delivered to my house for $105 plus shipping. From Magic City? From Magic City. Like, they have a takeout menu where if you're in Atlanta, I can order a steak and potato dinner and go fucking pick it up from Magic City right now. But if I'm not in Atlanta, I can order a 50-pack of Lou Will Lemon Pepper Chicken Wings for $104 plus shipping. For home and consumption. They, and they will send it to me for home consumption. And they have a picture of the bags. They like vacuum seal the bags and then ship them in cold storage to you. 
Well, hit order right now, and we'll see if they can get there by the time I'm done telling you about my guy. <laughs> this is a guy that I was not familiar with before we did this episode, but I, I had an idea of the accomplishment I wanted to look into, and I found this guy, and I also found an origin story for him that I feel like we need to real quick discuss just to set the scene. It has to do with the 1981-1982 Vancouver Canucks season. It's a pretty good year. Stan Smeal's really starting to take off. Roger Nielsen becomes the coach late in the season. We love him. Uh, there's also this lesser-known signing. This is the first year for an undrafted free agent, Yuri Bubla, who is a Czechoslovakian. He's been a defender for their international team since 1971. In June of 81, he signs with the Canucks. He plays like 256 games with them for the next five years or so. 118 points, totally solid career. Unclear if he retires then or if he retires due to what happens next, which is when he goes to the 1987 World Championships. He is arrested by Austrian authorities in Vienna for four kilograms of heroin, which is a lot of heroin. About nine, ten pounds of heroin, if you're trying to do the, the math in your head right now. At least that's an interesting one to get arrested for. No, I wasn't, I wasn't moving cocaine. I wasn't moving marijuana. I had a shit ton of heroin on me. Uh, he cops to it. He spends four years in prison. You can't do a lot in prison, but there is one thing that Jiri Bubla can do, and this is something he's also been doing since 1971, and that is being a largely neglectful and absentee father from the life of his son, who is my actual guy today, Jiri Schlager. Good work, James. Good work, James. Jiri Schlager is born in Czechoslovakia in Jilava. As I mentioned, this is in 1971, the same year that his dad is becoming a hockey player in the international senior level. This is May 30th in Jilava. He's born with his father's name, Jiri Bubla. But very early on, even before these drug charges, like, dad is out of the picture. He is just not there. And so Yuri instead takes on the name of his stepfather, and that is why he's going to go as Yuri Schlager for the rest of his life. He avoids the name, but it is hard to kind of avoid the legacy of his dad because, much like with his dad, we have a young Czechoslovakian star on the blue line, a little bit bigger. He's 210 pounds, 6 foot 1, compared to his dad's 200 pounds, 5 foot 11, uh, and he does shoot left instead of right. I don't know if that was intentional to try and distance himself from the dad, but they do shoot with a different handedness. Even then, though, he's still going to join the same team as his dad did when Schlegger joins the U16 side for the Bohemia region's HC Litvinov. Litvinov. Yeah, I think I'm saying that right. There's a lot of Czech words here. He has a pretty good start with this U16 team. His first two years there from 85 to 87, he puts up 61 points in 72 games. And this is going to earn him, sure, a spot on the senior team for Litvinov. But more importantly, this is going to earn him a spot on the Czechoslovakian national team. Bronze back-to-back the World Junior Championships. Then once again, he is going to find himself following in his father's footsteps as he represents Czechoslovakia at the Olympic Games. In 92, Czechoslovakia does great. They have a 4-1-0 group stage round and then beat Sweden in the quarterfinals. Do lose to Canada in a group stage rematch, but then in the third place championship, do have a 6-1 win over the U.S. Big deal, and so he gets a bronze medal out of this. We don't know if he and Bubla necessarily met after this. I've looked to see like what there is, and as far as I can tell, no relationship whatsoever, even though Bubla is out of jail. Bubla had a silver, though, and so the reason I bring this up again, I, I don't know whether or not this is 
weighing on Yuri Schlager because he does keep kind of accidentally finding himself stepping in these footprints of his father. And I, I think maybe that provides some of the motivation going forward, though that is speculation. However, that pattern's going to continue because now it's time for him to make the leap to the NHL team that drafted him back in 1990 and his dad's former employer, the Vancouver Canucks. Are you sure you aren't doing my like parent, like child category I had talked about? Because you're getting dangerously close to that, James. He's he's going to fit the other category, but like far be it for me to let the parameters that we've set up for this week take away from the fullness of the story that is Jiri Schlager. <laughs> A few months after that Olympic debut, he makes his NHL debut at just 21. And the first two years, again, pretty solid. 119 games, he's got 64 points. Gets a taste of the playoffs in 92-93. He unfortunately does not get to play at all in the playoffs the next year. And you know what? Maybe that is why the Canucks come up short in their cup run against the Rangers. And then the Canucks start to fall off a little bit. So they trade him midway through next season to Edmonton. Spends a season and a half as an oiler. And then he just totally decamps to Sweden for a year. Plays there and then comes back in 1997 after his rights get traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins. There is a, a draw there that we'll mention in a moment, and Schlager is fine with Pittsburgh. He's got 17 points in 73 games, ties his career high with 109 penalty minutes, so provides a little bit of uh, enforcement and toughness there. But there is a different important accomplishment that he's going to have between 97 and 98, because from February 8th to February 24th, for the first time ever, the NHL is going to take a pause for the Olympic Games. Big part of the reason that Schlager was so fine when his rights got traded to Penguins with playing is he is here with teammate and countryman Yaramir Yager. It's time for them to go to the 98 Nagano games. It is not only a first for NHL participation, Schlager has a chance for a big first because just months after those 92 Olympics, the Velvet Revolution ended and Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic and Slovakia became independent countries. And so now he gets to really for the first time step out of his dad's shadow and play for a national team that he did not. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the job that X did in RTG 053 detailing the run of this Czech team from the perspective of one Martin Straka. Marty Straka. Yeah, who, like as an offensive piece, significantly more important to this story. So I'm going to rehash a little bit of it and I'll, I'll let you know the things about Schlager. Uh, they do go to one in group to advance with their only loss coming to Russia. And then in the quarterfinals, though they go down one, nothing to the U S they score back four and answered after that for a four and one win in the semifinals late into the game. We are still scoreless zero zero here in the third period, because really the story of this 98 team, even more than Schlager, even more than Marty Straka is the goaltender in net Dominic Hasek, who is just putting on a fucking clinic. There comes a moment with just over 10 minutes remaining in this game against Canada here in the semis when improbably after just so far at this point, two points through 12 Olympic games, Schlager nets the first goal of this game strikes first one, nothing goal. It is a sound like it, it is that pent up release of what you get from that first score late in a 0 0 game. Oh, any Schlager, 
absolute pandemonium inside the arena. And that is quickly silenced not long after when Canada does draw back even 1-1. But Hashik holds on the shootout. And so they are able to go forward into the finals for a rematch with that group stage foe Russia. Hashik stops all 20 Russian shots. The Russian goaltender Stolnikov also stops 20 shots. But the Czech Republic get 21 off on him, which means they do win one nothing. And Yuri Schleger is part of this 1998 gold medal winning Czech Republic hockey team. And that means he is one third to the monumental achievement that he is going to reach with the lead that I've been burying so long here. He is going to start working his way towards the triple gold club. Triple gold as a descriptor means you have won a Stanley cup in the NHL. You have won an IIHF World Championship, and you have won Olympic gold. And as a descriptor, it first came into use in about 2002 when a trio of Canadian NHLers got it as Canada won Olympic gold there in Salt Lake City. But it was first accomplished a little bit further back. It was a trio of Swedes who, with their 94 Olympic gold, got it. And in both of these cases, you see uh, a commonality that I think is worth pointing out. It's very often a couple chunks of teammates all at once getting it as they team up in the NHL or on one of these national teams. Like I said, we had those trio of Avalanche teammates from Sweden, which included Hall of Famer Peter Forsberg. We had a duo of Russian Hall of Famers with Detroit in 97 who have it. Another pair of Russians with the New Jersey Devils in 2000. So by the time we get to 2002, that's everyone. There's ever one triple gold when we start referring to it as a triple gold club. Schlegger has now tasted a small bit of this glory and more glory than his father ever managed to achieve. You know, even if he was just a role player, he was exactly the role that they needed. He contributed when he had to, and he's ready to return to another role when he goes back to the NHL. He's a couple more years with the Penguins. He will eventually leave, but he ends up being the last person to wear 71 before Evgeny Malkin, which I think is interesting because it does mean he's probably going to be the second to last person to ever wear the number 71 with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He gets traded in January of 2001 to the fledgling Atlanta Thrashers, who are bad that year and even worse the next. So midseason there in 2002, there's a contender looking for just a little bit of blue line depth. They come a calling. And the Flashers send out Yuri Schlager. This is how he ends up on the 2002 Detroit Red Wings. Schlager plays all of eight games for the Red Wings in the regular season. Barely even a cup of coffee. But he does manage to get on the postseason roster. Because the Red Wings make the postseason after a phenomenal regular season with the number one seed in the West. It's kind of a poetic first round matchup. The eight seed in front of them is that old former employer of both him and his father. Vancouver Canucks and they fall back in a two nothing hole early it's looking a little dicey for Detroit but there is a familiar face in goal for Detroit and that is Dominic Hasek who once again is going to do a lot of heavy lifting here for Yuri Schlager on his road to taste another one of that third of the triple gold club they end up taking care of Vancouver in the second round Hasek bookends a five-game gentleman's sweep for Detroit over the Blues with a pair of shutouts and this puts Schlager and company in the Western Conference Finals, which is a absolute classic against Colorado. This is Colorado's fourth straight Western Conference Finals at the point. 
It is a rematch of the 2000 Western Conference Finals. It does not disappoint. Three of the first five games are decided by overtime. Eventually goes the distance. Hashik finishes the series with two straight shutouts. That second shutout is a 7-0 Game 7 shutout by Detroit. It is the biggest blowout Game 7 ever. So the series, unfortunately, does have a kind of boring end. And here's the thing. Even with an entire period of being up 6-0, they enter the third up 6-0, there is no ice time for Yuri Schlegger. In fact, to this point, there has not been any ice time for Yuri Schlegger in a moment of this Detroit postseason run, despite him being on the roster. All right, so he's the boombox guy in the locker room who, you know, picks out the songs for everybody so when they come in, they can unwind and have fun. That, that's, that's his job, like the dude who discovered dancing on my own. Yeah, I was about to say that he would have uh, the aux cord, but we are like a pre-aux cord time here. Jared Stubbs, by the way, and his Spotify yes. playlist is, is, is yes. publicly viewable. So you can you can play the same playlist at any point. We enter the 2002 Stanley Cup Finals ahead of us, the Carolina Hurricanes. Game one is a 3-2 win one minute into overtime for Carolina. It was a big upset initially. And maybe that is the edge that Detroit needs because they then winning game two in Detroit. They sweep over there in Carolina. And now we're here, Game 5. It's eventually going to be a 3-1 win to clinch their 10th Stanley Cup. And what is notable is for the first time in the entire playoffs, Yuri Schlegger sees the ice for 17 minutes and 11 seconds. He gets two shots, two penalty minutes, and finishes with a plus-minus of two. Gets his name on the scorecard, gets his name on the Stanley Cup, and gets his second checkbox for that triple gold club. I love that... Like, it almost makes it, I mean, it definitely makes it better that it's real playing time. It's not even like, ah, we put you out there for a courtesy shift with, like, five minutes left. It Like, to have not game. used him once, yeah, to have not used once, and then he puts in the average amount of time that your seventh defender gets in an average game. Remarkable. Remarkable. Save the best for last. Save yeah. the guyest for last. So if you take that, and you add that to his regular season totals. Nine total games for Yuri Schlager with the Detroit Red Wings. And the second box has been checked. Like, going back to Nagano, he's basically played 15 games for a team with Dominic Hasek in goal. And it has got him two of the three golds for the triple gold crown. <laughs> he has achieved two things his dad never did. And maybe he feels a little more free from those burdens. And that allows him to take his free agency rights to Vancouver. He signs to return to the Vancouver Canucks and lasts all of four months before they trade him to Boston. And I'm quoting hockey reference here for unknown compensation. Vancouver Canucks legend and the equivalent of the player to be named later unknown compensation. That's, that's a good one. I like that's that a almost lot. as good as cash considerations. He finishes the season with Boston. And then if you're keeping score, the next year is 2004-2005. So there is no season for the NHL. But Schleicher has bigger fish to fry. Goes back and plays in the Czech Republic for a while. But on April 20th, 2005, we are only 10 days away from April 30th, which is the start of the 2005 IIHF World Championship. Czech Republic lucks into a pretty easy group with Switzerland, Germany, and Kazakhstan. Go undefeated, 
in large part due to, uh, you know, Yager is there as a productive forward along with a couple others. But the real thing is we do not have Dominic Hashik in gold now. Now we have Tomasz Vokun or, or uh, Tomasz Vokun. I don't know what exactly the emphasis is on his last R- Real quick. Can we go back to the Yager was there part? Because Yager is still here, man. Yeah, man. He, he's still been playing. around for 40 years still. The Penguins finally retired his number and did his and honor he had to take a last break week. from the season. And he had to leave his active season to do it because he's still fucking playing. <laughs> this man is insane. Yeah. Dude, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Do you think he makes it to 60 at this point? How old is he now? Like 55? Has to. Like, I mean, because the other thing too is the team he's 52. That he plays, so that's a, that's a long time. The thing is, though, that the team that he plays for is the team that he owns. So, like, if he wants to, who's fucking telling him no? He signs the paychecks. He's going to play hockey until he dies on the ice. Straight up, Yarmir Yager is going to die on the ice as a senior citizen. I hope he makes it to senior citizen. And he'll still have a mullet. Yeah. He will have a senior citizen mullet. I mean, here, I'll say this right now. There is not a single team in the NHL that if you were able to have Yarmir Yager as a strictly power play specialist running the point there's no team that wouldn't benefit from at least yeah. having him on their second power play yeah. unit he's incredible he is and he's a, again a big part of why this Czech team here in 2005 is doing so well they get to a second sort of group stage the qualifying round they go four and one here with one loss to russia quarterfinals may 12th now usa goes up 2-0 early in the second but they battle back they force a shootout and they manage to win. Sets up a semifinals with Sweden. It's Vokun versus Lundqvist. There's a Straka goal in here for Xavier. There is a uh, Henrik Sedin goal assisted by Daniel Sedin in here for me. It goes to overtime, and the Czech Republic wins about four minutes and 43 seconds in to reach the finals against Canada. Four minutes and 13 seconds in. Martin Ruchinski and Jarmir Jager assist on a Vaklav Prospal goal. And thanks to Tomas Vakun's outdoing Hashik and being able to post the first ever finals shutout in IIHF World Championship history, that goal becomes the earliest game-winning goal in IIHF World Championship history. It is a 3-0 win, and that is how, here in the, get this, 69th edition of the IIHF World Championship, with zero points in nine games, Yuri Schleger has gained entry into the triple gold club. This man really is the third member in a group project. All that matters is that is that final score at the end. The distribution of effort and work means absolutely nothing. It reminds me of like there was um there was an old Reddit post where it was like saying about all the great things about playing with the Milwaukee Bucks and it was like Giannis Antetokounmpo is the Greek freak. Mm-hmm. Chris Middleton is a dead-eye shooter. Ish Smith is a point guard. Like, <laughs> Yuri is a hockey player. Well, not only is he a hockey player, he is now, including himself and Yarmir Yager, only one of 16 at this time. Seven of whom were Hall of Famers, not including Yarmir Yager, because he is still active. Even now, 30 players are in there. And 17 of them, so I counted, nine of them are currently Hall of Famers. That's 30% easy. Eight of them are like absolute shoo-ins. We're talking uh, Jonathan Taves. We're talking Yarmir Yager, like dudes that will get in first or second ballot. 
That is 57% of all members of the Triple Gold Club being Hall of Famers, if you take that assumption. On average in hockey, about 4 to 5% of active players at any given time, it's estimated, are Hall of Famers. And Yuri Schlager is just hanging out here in the middle of it. If we talk about the Detroit run, I said that was, you know, in nine games altogether, one point. In the Olympic run, six games for that particular run, one point. In this run, nine games for the world championship, zero points. That's two points in 24 games in tournaments that mattered to get him the triple gold crown. Before we move forward, if I if you yeah. will indulge me on a tangent real quick. Please, because, please. Because I, look, I looked at the 2005 IHF Hockey Championships. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know about how they structure this is that they do it in divisions so that, like, Countries where hockey is an emerging sport or like not quite as popular, they have their own competition. In 2005, Mexico won the Division Three championship. That's cool. What is jaw-dropping is Armenia finished fifth of the five teams in that group. They scored five goals across four games and allowed 142 goals in four games. I don't know how you have time to allow that many. That's just fitting them in. Think of how long the games go if there's a celebration for everyone. You got to go running clock at a certain point. They couldn't find someone big enough in all of Armenia to play goalie, so they played six skaters on the ice the entire time and went all-out offense. Well, so let me just run through their games real quick because they play each team once. So they lose to South Africa 33-1. to they lose to Ireland, 23-1. to Ireland was the fourth-place team. The only game Ireland won was against Armenia. They lose 38-3 to to Luxembourg and to the champion Mexico. 48 to nothing. they lose. <laughs> nearly, nearly a goal a minute. Nearly, nearly a goal, goal a, minute. a minute. And it's funny that you mentioned that about their goalie, Xavier, because Armin Lalayan was the only goalie to play every single minute for his team. He faced 315 shots. He allowed 142 goals for a goals allowed average of 35.5, and his save percentage was 54.92. That's better than I thought it would be, to be totally honest. That's more honest. than half of his That shot. is better than yeah. I thought it would be. <laughs> That's a national hero. He was tied for third in the group in shutouts with zero. Speaking of national heroes... Now, as one of those with Yager, we have our boy Yuri Schlager returning to the States, and he plays one more year with the Bruins after lockout, and then he just goes back to the Czech Republic, plays with Litvinov for a number of years, has like a cool political career. Uh, I can say safely it's a left-wing one, and I had to check that because I looked it up, and it said he was in the National Socialist Party, and I was like, okay, that could be cool, but also we do definitely need to check when those two words are adjacent (laughs) to one another. No, he is. He was a, a socialist as an MP there for a few years before he just thought politics was too dirty. So he went back to sports, which was a much cleaner world for him and played for the Czech Republic for a couple more years before hanging it up. It's a really cool career and it has this bright moment. And maybe I was harping on the dad thing a little too much. But the, the reason that I thought that kind of contributed to the story is one, just like Jerry Bubla just is a delightful little like 30 seconds. Here's this guy who got arrested for four kilograms of heroin after playing for the Canucks for a couple of years. But beyond that, he abdicated 
some duties. He was trying to achieve whatever it was that he was trying to achieve. And it is interesting to me that if he could have been a better dad, A. Jiri Bubla would have gone on potentially to have some incredible accomplishments. But instead, because of his shortcomings, it is Yuri Schleger who instead went on to do those, perhaps in spite of the dad, perhaps not even related to that, just for himself. But either way, those accomplishments are what make him my guy today. Yuri Schleger? I would love for him to be Yuri Schleger. I believe that's up to the three of us now. But, I mean, I've made my affinity quite well known, I think. This was a good one. A lot of really good options here. I'm very happy with my topic. I I think we need to start by getting the easy one out of the way. Eric Davis is great. If you told me there's a guy that played about 10 years and was nearly a member of the 300-300 club, it's not like crazy shocking that one of those years he went off and put everything together and like had one of those statistically phenomenal seasons. Like his career production is in line with one of those crazy years. And that five-year span that he starts off with initially, like, no one would be shocked in the middle of that that Eric Davis is going to put up seasons like that. This is not to take away from a very good narrative that he has, but I do think in regards to your category, like, it felt like you wanted people that looked like they shouldn't belong in these clubs. And you look at the career of Eric Davis And maybe he's the person you're surprised to see there, but I don't think upon further examination, he quote unquote doesn't belong in the same way that Corey Brewer and Yuri Schlager do. That's fine. You know, I'm not going to push hard for my guy, but I did want to say before we move Eric Davis out of here, have either of you heard of the Bob and Tom show? I saw this on the Wikipedia page. It's pretty fantastic. So the Bob and Tom show is a nationally syndicated radio show. It's like a sports comedy show that has been airing for over 40 years. Think of it kind of like the Howard Stern show, but like more PG again, because it's on, on just standard radio. And it's more, it's more than Mike and Mike, but it's less than Howard Stern. It's, yeah, it's that's, a, that's, a pretty, that, that's a pretty good uh, descriptor. But again, it's been going on for over 40 years. And there was a comedian whose name was Ron Sexton who was a major member of this group. He played multiple different characters who would call in to, you know, rant about different things. And his most famous character was a guy named Donnie Baker. Uh, Donnie Baker was a Midwestern Ohio rednecky guy who was a lifelong Reds fan, always was trying to sell his boat and had a long running feud with uh, his neighbor to the north, Tony Mitchell, who was always unseen, just, just referenced. Both Ron Sexton and his character, Donnie Baker, idolized Eric Davis. And there was points in this show where Donnie Baker said that he put a curse on Marge Schott after what she did to Eric Davis after the World Series in leaving him in Oakland. And I love the idea that... The downfall of Marge Schott was because of this radio character putting a curse on her after leaving Eric Davis in the hospital by himself after winning the World Series. Once again, Marge Schott, not a good person. Here's the only thing I say for that story, though. Like, yes, Marge Schott sucks, but the teammates could have also said, hey, we're not getting on the fucking plane. Our guy's in the hospital right now. 
she's an asshole. She's not the only asshole in that story. That's my only point. And she was cursed on behalf of Eric Davis. But with that said, we can move on to Corey Brewer and Yuri Schlager. I mean, the Corey Brewer one is very good. Hiding your Matryoshka doll with the, oh, look at this 50-point score. Surprise! It's a 50-point score with also six steals. I I was tempted, I will say, if he wasn't still active, I would have gone probably Thad Young because I love that graphic where it's like, I forget the exact stats, but it's like players to average 13.5 points, like 5.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and 1.2 blocks on at least 42% shooting. And it's like Magic, Larry, Jordan, LeBron, Thad Thad Young. It's not quite that distinguishable group, but I do think it's a pretty distinguished group that he finds himself among there. And we also get the bonus first Florida Gator to ever record a triple-double in there. On just like an objective quantitative level, if we are saying that it is particularly that foursome and not just the 50-point scores, because I wouldn't know the number for the 50-point scores, but 75% of the people who have put up a 50-point game with six deals or more are in the Hall of Fame. And admittedly, even to doing some like, loose math on the eight that I consider like pretty slam dunks of the 30 to have done it that are not already in the Hall of Fame, we're only looking at 17 out of 30 or 57%. So if we're talking about like this guy makes up the smallest proportion in a list otherwise full of Hall of Famers for this silly accomplishment, on just a pure number-based way. Gotta give it to Corey Brewer. But of course, Diaz, you hate numbers. <laughs> I do hate numbers. I am much more partial to stories. And the Yuri Schlager story is pretty fucking great. I mean, the, 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 the son that rejects the sins of the father yet finds himself on the path of the father in weird ways kind of throughout his career, starting off with the Canucks. I love all of that parallelism. But... It's it's funny because I can look at this one of two ways where, you know, ultimately rings. I have always said, I will always say, ultimately rings. Yuri Schlager's accomplishment is a rings accomplishment. But to get 50, you got to get 50. And Corey Brewer has three rings. They have an he equal do- number of rings. He does have three rings. They're just not quite distributed in the same way. I I'm surprised that there wasn't like one year and I'm not saying for the Olympic team, but one of those world championship years where like a lot of guys called out and they're like, you know, we need a fucking like just defensive guy to come in here. I'm surprised Corey Brewer never got his call to like, even just training camp for like the 06 world cup team. Can I share one more interesting little nugget about our boy Yuri Schlager within this club? Because I already mentioned that he goes into the club with Yarmir Yager. They enter at the same time. But he's also just been teammates with so many of these guys kind of accidentally. And it's largely through that 2002 Red Wings squad. That Red Wings squad is just littered with guys that end up in triple gold eventually. You've got two Russians with Igor Larionov and Pavel Datsuk. And then you've got Canadian Brendan Shanahan, who joins in 2004, and uh, Nicholas Lidstrom of Sweden. So just... Also crazy that like the 2002 Red Wings are probably the densest NHL team. There are a few other, like the the 96 Avalanche are also very, very dense in uh, guys that will eventually have this accomplishment. But interesting that 
in his already kind of star-crossed way of getting here, that team that he got one of those three with had so many of those kind of star-crossed guys getting this very rare accomplishment. Pavel Datsuk was real nice. Is he the best Russian? I think he might be the best Russian. I think I'd probably take him over Ovi. It's, that's pretty tough at this point. I also, I think, have to be a little bit partial to Pavel Burry. That's fair. That's fair. Now, Burry, Burry has a good argument, too. But let's not get distracted about Hall of Fame arguments. Let's get, let's get back to Hall of Guy arguments. Yeah. I don't know. I, like, I just fucking love Corey Brewer. And I also, like, regardless of how this vote goes, I encourage both of you. I encourage the listeners. There's an NBA video uh, that the official NBA YouTube uploaded when it happened of every field goal that Corey Brewer got. And it is a startling amount of just straight line drives to the rim. Like, there's, there's the one mid-range jumper. There's the banked in three. There's a catch-and-shoot corner three. Everything else is just straight line drives. And it's like, it is the least skilled displayed, I would say, for a 50-point game in NBA history. There was It was just right place, right time the whole way. But I love it. And, and again, like I said, to, to me, the difference between the accomplishments is... To get 50, you got to score 50. Yeah. He was very close to not even being on the ice for any of that Stanley Cup run, uh, was Gary Schlager. Absolutely. And I, I think as we turn to X, the progenitor of this category, that's really the thing to harp on. Like, with your interpretation, what here is more valuable? An accomplishment that someone, like, kind of lucked into that puts them in esteemed company or like an accomplishment that someone did have to physically go out and do that puts them into that esteemed company which of those two approaches more appeals to what you had in mind so if you put it in that dichotomy i lean towards the latter where it's something that the person like actively did and not was just a part of but i did want to say just in general i liked diaz's misdirection I also like that we came up with Diaz's memoir title already today, uh, which we could also title this episode, just add a guy in there somewhere. I think that'd be a great, a great title. I like Yuri Schlager because you know I, my affinity for those Czech teams, but I don't know if I can let Yuri Schlager be the first person from those Czech teams into this hall when Marty Straka didn't get in and even like Mark Ruchinski We have, we have like in. no mechanism to bring him in again now so like every czech hockey player has been taken off the board that is not the case because if i were to bring in marty rochinski at some point in the next couple in the next couple weeks and then he gets in we could then bring in yuri schlager during relitigation democracy i'm not saying it's not going to happen i'm just saying that it's would would you in that case xavier formalize your vote here yeah, give me the guy who should have been Carmelo Anthony's uh, other half, but the Knicks weren't smart enough to do it and had the no-bag 50-point game. Almost Knicks legend. Almost Knicks legend. Should have been Knicks legend. Look, I mean, if the Knicks were a smarter organization, let's go back, folks. There could have been a world where the Knicks had Steph Curry, Carmelo Anthony, and with all that offense, all you need is somebody to hold down the other end of the court You need a dog, but the most important thing about a dog is dog knows what its place is. Dog knows when it's time to defend. Dog knows when it's time to take the wide open lane and drive to the rim. He knows when it's time to do that 16 times in one game and route to a 51-point performance at the end of a very forgettable Minnesota Timberwolves season. But 
He had that dog in him. He had that wolf in him. He had 51 points in him. He had back-to-back reigns with the Florida Gators in him. And he now has a spot in our illustrious hall. Welcome to the Hall of Guy, Corey Brewer. Welcome noted James Harden stopper, Corey Brewer. He really, like, annoyed the shit out of him. Like, I like to think that they prob- like he probably got traded because James Harden... Which is like I, I I can't have this guy guarding me in practice anymore. This is enough. <laughs> Get him out. Well, James Harden's loss is our gain because now that he's been kicked out of Houston, we can welcome it in here. And we are so glad that we got to welcome you back in here, folks. Uh, of course, we could not welcome anyone here without the help of producer Craig and the coders behind him, or our musical director Don Ham. Thanks to him for his lovely theme music. Uh, And thanks to you all for deciding to come on in and join us for another episode of Remember That Guy. If you want to continue to talk sports with us outside of the episode, or if you want to get guys of the day, any of that stuff can be found at bit.ly slash remember that guy. All one word, all lowercase. I got nothing else. It's spring training, baby. Birds. The bird season never ends in Baltimore. That is the one nice thing. Did you all see the latest Doc Rivers quote about how this isn't his fault? It's definitely not his fault. It's never Doc Rivers' mad. fault. Don't put it in the papers that he's mad. He said he told Buck's ownership that it wasn't a good idea to hire him. What a fucking loser. In, in being so unself-aware, he was accidentally the most self-aware that he's ever been in his life. Well... Hopefully, for a longer period of time than Doc Rivers will be the Milwaukee Bucks coach, I will continue to be one of your hosts, James. I'll be the very special guest, Xavier. And I'll be Diaz, and we'll say it to Doc Rivers very soon, but as Don McLean once sang, bye-bye, Miss American Guy. There's no what? separate Puerto Rican citizenship. Like it's a it, it's a joke on multiple levels. I think you can apply for Puerto Rican citizenship, and then like you get the protections that would come with that as it relates to U.S. citizenship. But it might be a, like a distinct separate thing. I don't know. Puerto Rican citizenship does not exist independently of United States citizenship because Puerto Rico is not an independent sovereign nation. You can technically get like a Puerto Rican citizenship certificate, but you have to be a U.S. citizen first. <laughs> and what That's we were talking about was Diaz is going yeah. to draft Yamamoto because Diaz is the number one pick in our draft. But Diaz only has Hispanics on his team. So I've been trying to trade with other people to get Hispanics uh, to trade with Diaz. That's why you brought it up. That's why you brought Okay. So yeah, did, I, yeah I made another fake Passant tweet. That was what it was. I thought it was more absurd that it wasn't even like Mexican or like Honduran citizenship that he was applying for, you know, specifically Puerto Rican. Rican. Yeah. Yeah. Not American, not United States, Ian. You get two uh, gringo spots the way the NPB teams get two foreign spots. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's Tommy Edmond and it's looking like Yamamoto for the second one. Yeah. So Diaz is going to draft Yamamoto and make him Hispanic. Yeah. There is some... There are some Hispanic people you meet every once in a while with like a vaguely Eastern Asian sounding name that just kind of sneak up on you. There's a whole like country that's like Asian, the but Philippines. also vaguely Latino. Exactly. Yeah. Yamamoto is just secretly Filipino. Exactly.
Welcome aboard. Bienvenidos.